So we've covered microscopic phytoplankton, krill, benthic ecology, and the food chain. But how about the charismatic megafauna iconic to the Southern Ocean? Today we are joined by Dr. Simon Childerhouse, a marine mammal ecologist at the Cawthorn Institute in Nelson, New Zealand, and Sarah Michael, a veterinary scientist specialising in marine mammals and conservation biology. Sarah is also studying towards her PhD part-time in Hobart, Australia. Tune in as we discuss their most recent work with wet owl seals, sea lions, whales and more. These two are absolute superstars and work with some pretty incredible animals in the world's most extreme environments. Not only do these two have experience working in Antarctica, but the subantarctic islands below New Zealand. Well, welcome Simon and Sarah. We're so excited to have you on the podcast today. Let's just get straight into it and I'd love to hear about your most recent trip to Antarctica. So what did that entail? We were down there last summer, um, went down in December. We spent about six weeks studying Weddell seals um, based out of Scott Base in the Ross Sea. So that was my first trip down there to the Antarctic. Um, Sarah's bit more experienced than me she'd been a year before so she was sharing all her knowledge with us but essentially we were heading out each day from Scott Base on snowmobiles to find Weddell seals um, and to try and do some biological studies around them kind of in the end we would go out find some seals that we had known um, reproductive histories of and catch them in a net um, Sarah would anaesthetize them and then we would deploy some instruments and undertake sampling to try and understand better how they're using the marine environment. So once you anaesthetized them, what were you, you were deploying cameras on into the seals? Do I understand that correctly? Yeah, so we had a range, a range of instruments on them. Um, we had cameras facing forward to try and see what they were eating and what they were doing under the ice. But we also had, for the first time, some cameras facing backwards to try and see um, how they might be interacting with other seals under the ice because we'd seen previously that they tend to be quite um, well they, they socialize primarily under the ice rather than on it so hoping to get some footage of mating but Very I don't cool. think we saw I don't think we saw any but yeah so dive recorders to see how deep they're going and how long they're diving um, motion sensors like accelerometers and magnetometers to basically see how they were moving in three dimensionals under the ice as well and what they were eating and then some biological sample collection to kind of relate the foraging data to potential physiological data. Biological samples were for um, collaborators around the world so um, just combining the, the catching of the animal to be as useful as possible to lots of different people. That's really interesting. So how exactly do you, do you catch the animal, um, I guess, in a, a safe and as humane way as possible? Yeah, so that was my role. Um, I've done lots of catching of seals around the mainland, um, seals and sea lions, but never worked with these guys before. And to be honest, they were fairly easy. They're, they're three to 400 kilos, so they're large, but they're pretty slow moving on the ice. So really you just needed to put a net over their head um, mm -hmm which was reasonably easy to do. And then Sarah um, or Rachel, the team leader, would um, give them an injectable anaesthetic. So, so yeah, so it's fairly straightforward, not quite as exciting as some of the other projects Sarah and I have worked on where we need to chase animals around to try and get them in the net and then physically restrain them. This was a 
really nice process. Yeah, no, it definitely sounds fun. What a great place to work. And especially with seals, they're a pretty cool focal species, that's for sure. Sarah, do you want to talk a bit about that anesthesia? Because that's the stuff I don't really know much about, but it was pretty, it's something we needed to be super careful about. Firstly, we had to get a pretty good estimate of weight, which is quite hard just by looking at the seal, but it's better than some other seals, I guess, because we can walk up relatively close to the seal and it will just lay there and do nothing. Mm -hmm. Um, So you can get a bit of a 3D idea of how much it will weigh. Uh, I think the heaviest one we anaesthetised was 450 kilos and the lightest one, 250, um, because they're gradually losing weight throughout the season as the pups get bigger. So after we estimate the weight, drop the drugs and... After Simon nets it, give it an injection in the muscle around the back legs and then back off, take the net off and wait for her to get sleepy, um, which normally takes about 15 minutes. Then depending on how sleepy she is, you can come up and cover her eyes with a towel. We'll know then how sleepy she is as to whether she throws the towel off or not. If she is sleepy enough we continue if she's not we might give her a top-up anesthetic drug and yeah monitor the anesthetic throughout the time and give her top-ups as she's getting light depending on how much more we need to do so the length of anesthesia could be between one and two hours for attaching all the all the tags Um, and the same animals were anesthetized a second time about five days after the first just so that we could retrieve the tags to get the data from them so that was maybe like 15 minutes interesting and so each of these seals were fitted with one of these cameras as well though right so will you go back eventually and take the cameras off the seals if you can find them again or so so the cameras were retrieved with the all the other tags five days afterwards so they're really fine scale tags all of them so they're collecting data quite often throughout the five days and then they run out of battery so that's why we had to retrieve them and if right. we didn't get them back then there was no data yeah so we had to choose um females that had pups that were not about to wean um so while she's got a pup she's coming back to the same place to feed the pup but as soon as the pup weans she has no tie to that area and could go anywhere so we had to be pretty careful that we could choose females that had pups that were not too young that they spent all their time with their pup and didn't go anywhere didn't get any good recordings and didn't have pups that were too old that we lost them and all their data do you tell by their size uh how old they are and whether or not the mother's going to be leaving more frequently or less uh there's there's a u.s team called b009 um that have been doing work for a really really long time decades um collecting data on all the weddell seals in mcmurdo sound um so they tag all the pups um as close as possible to when they're born so we get a list of the exact age of all the pups that are tagged so the mothers are tagged as well from when they were pups so we have a lot of background data on those animals made it really easy for us actually yeah Oh, fascinating. What is the ultimate goal here? What are you trying to achieve with your research? And how do you incorporate your research into an advice program for the New Zealand government and industries and other key stakeholders? So we were part of a a large scale project, the Ross Ramp project, which is the Ross Sea Research and Monitoring Program, Mm -hmm. which is about an 11, 12 million dollar New Zealand government funded project to understand the Ross Sea Marine Protected Area. So we were a very small part of that, um, but 
but the overall aim of the project in its entirety is to try and understand the Ross Sea Marine Protected Area, which is the largest marine protected area in the world and one of the newest, to see how effective it is in protecting all the um, flora and fauna in the Antarctic. And so there are other programs looking at fish, uh, at penguins, at seabirds, um, at, you know, benthic, benthic um, animals. But, but our small part was weddell seals to see how well the MPA is likely to be protecting the feeding area and the species that they're feeding on. So that was why we were trying to figure out where they were going and what they were doing. Essentially, it's kind of collecting baseline information. The, the Ross Sea uh, Marine Protected Area is in place, I forget for how many years, but every five years it needs to be reviewed and we need to demonstrate that we're, under, we're undertaking research to understand it and answering the questions that we set out to do so. So, so it's kind of cool. The work really is only in its, um, I guess, second or third year. So there's a range of the components that all come together. Most of the work feeds into New Zealand uh, government priorities for the Southern Ocean and the Antarctic region. So Ministry of Foreign Affairs uses the work, um, Ministry of Primary Industries uses the work for fisheries um, assessments for toothfish and stuff like that. Department of Conservation has an interest in marine mammals and other threatened fauna down there. So all that work kind of gets pulled in to reports and publications that's used um, by those agencies really to try and manage and conserve the area better. It all gets fed into big international agreements um, like the International Whaling Commission, um, the CAMELAR, which is the Convention for the Conservation of Marine and Living Resources. So all the stuff kind of data we get and the data the other groups get feeds into trying to manage and conserve it better really. You guys went down last year and the year before last as well. Is that right, Sarah? Uh, yes, I've done two two seasons in November, December time now. Has this season, I'm assuming, been <laughs> postponed or cancelled entirely? Yes. <laughs> yeah, but, um, yeah. There wasn't concrete plans to go down this coming summer, um, but the introduction of COVID obviously made it cancelled so we didn't really bother planning a season we expected it was going to be pretty yeah. a pretty tough season for people down there um, so yeah so no we're not doing any work this summer and then there is potential for future work um, but that hasn't really been decided yet so. yeah oh, well fingers crossed so yeah. what was the most surprising challenge that you found with your research Antarctica is such an extreme environment and we just talked about the complexities of um, how you actually did your work but what was the most surprising thing um, for me, it was my first year last year. I guess it, it, it seems a bit inane to say that the cold was the biggest surprise for me because I was expecting it to be cold. But mm. you, you don't think about what that means for research. Um, basically, you're out on the ice for most of the day. Um, the gear they provide is awesome, so you don't didn't get cold really, but it just impacts every bit of research you do. All your samples that you collect from an animal need to be kept warm so they don't freeze. All the chemicals um, or drugs we need for the anesthesia need to be kept warm um, and liquid so we can use them. So, and mm -hmm. even the instruments themselves we're deploying on instruments have to be kind of looked after. So it makes it really complicated. It's and kind of weird to put things in a chili bin to keep them warm <laughs> instead of cold. Yeah. So one, one of the cool things, there was a very helpful, um, tech down there who trans 
in, installed a heater inside one of our chili bins. So it was an insulated box that actually kept things warm and rather than cold. And so, yeah, Sarah was really careful at keeping that going. So it stopped all our samples from freezing and, and everything else. But overall, it was it was it was manageable, but it just made it a lot harder than and things you didn't think about having to do mm. around work around mainland. You had to do differently down there. I can imagine yeah. dexterity in your fingers with gloves. Yeah, just the little things you don't really think of, right? Yeah, there, there were simple things like we use glue to epoxy glue to glue the transmitters onto the animals, and of course it freezes, and so we basically had to keep it in the heater or stuff down our jackets to try and keep it warm and then bring it out at the last minute. Mm -hmm. And then it, the kind of exothermic reaction where the two part poxy mixes together needs to be kept warm. Otherwise it won't mix. So yeah, it was a, it was a real challenge trying to get it done, but we got through most of those issues, I think. Well done. And now, now for a little bit more of a broad question, I guess when we're talking about marine mammals and, you know, when you think of Antarctic marine mammals like killer whales and seals, normally the word charismatic is thrown around quite a bit, charismatic megafauna. So I guess what, what to you makes these animals in particular charismatic megafauna? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean they're megafauna, so they're kind of large animals, which I think is interesting in itself because we tend to be drawn to large things. But they're charismatic... And I, in the way that I think we can relate to them. I mean, most people, particularly around New Zealand, are familiar with seals. We see their pups born, they're super cute, their parents are mostly super cute, although they do smell in some circumstances. But I think the reason they're charismatic is that we can relate to them. You know, we see a mother with nursing her pup, we kind of know, we can relate to that as people, you know, as having pets of our own or seeing wild animals do it. And then the reality is they're just cute people would love to go over and give them a hug, I think is the reality of it. Not a good idea because they have pretty horrible mouths um, and they will bite you. But they do look cute and we can relate to them. And the, the advantage, I mean, we're lucky, Sarah and I work on quite cool animals, although Sarah works on much cooler variety than me. But marine mammals keep people's attention and gets people's attention. And so um, it's lucky for us in that we can work on those species they're generally used as a flagship species to protect a whole bunch of other things. So it's hard to get enthusiastic about sea spiders or, you know, sea cucumbers, which are an important part of the ecosystem down there. But if we can reach people by telling them about weddell seals and how cute they are and where they go and how deep they dive, then we can hopefully engage people in Antarctica and, and encourage them to protect it more. No, that's a really good point you make there. I know, especially with my master's research, I was working with phytoplankton and I would see people's interests disappear immediately. <laughs> that's right. So I'd always work my way down and I'd be like, oh, well, you know, if you think about the seals and you think about the whales, they're all part of this wider food chain. So if you care about them, you need to care about the phytoplankton. I'd always pull yeah, that in because <laughs> you're right. Yeah. It's what hooks people. That's not unique to Antarctica. That's used all over the world. People use elephants or whales or pandas to run their conservation campaigns because it, it works better than phytoplankton or you know sea spiders, <laughs> even though they're just as important and interesting. Exactly. I couldn't agree more. So, Simon, what other research programs have you been involved in and what other marine mammal species do you study and have studied in the past? 
Yeah, um, I guess I've been marine mammal biologist for about 20 years in New Zealand and around the world. Worked, um, had half a dozen years working in Australia at the Marine Mammal Centre. So mainly whales, dolphins and seals is what I do um, and kind of flip around those depending on what there is. Um, kind of some of the fun projects we're working on at the moment is satellite tracking of southern right whales, which is done in the New Zealand subantarctic around the Auckland Islands. Um, we've got a two-year program with the University of Auckland on that, doing some tracking of singing humpback whales around the east coast of the South Island, trying to figure out how many are going past and trying to f kind of characterise their migration corridor so that um, any offshore development won't necessarily impact on them. But a whole range of things. I've worked with Sarah on a lot of things, including um, we worked in the Kaikoura road rebuilding project where we moved about 16,000 fur seals off the construction site while they're rebuilding the roads, which was kind of a, quite a cool project. Um, and it was nice to work on some practical project that really had great conservation outcomes because a lot of those animals would have probably been injured or potentially even killed if we hadn't done that so that's kind of nice but a range of things I'm, I'm quite lucky New Zealand has lots of marine mammals so there's lots for us to do. Amazing and how about you Sarah? Marine mammals uh, so I currently work in Tasmania as a wildlife vet for the state government um, so we were involved not long ago with the mass stranding of longfin pilot whales in Strawn um, so that was pretty yeah. exciting to be involved with in a, a horrible situation but a really was great like experience. It was hundreds, was it? Uh, yeah, I think 116 rescued out of 470 stranded. Yeah. Um, so there's quite a massive operation that went on for about seven days. And we sort of trialled some new ways of rescuing whales by attaching them to um, jet boats to get them out of shallow water where they were grounded on a sandbar. So that was really cool to be involved with. I am in the later stages of my PhD on pup mortality in New Zealand sea lions at the Auckland Islands, looking at risk factors for pup mortality and how we can mitigate it to improve survival. Yeah, and bits and pieces of different marine mammals here in Tasmania, necropsy animals that wash ashore, um, leopard seals, uh, pygmy sperm whale, all kinds of different things. We get quite a lot of marine mammals around here too. I've anaesthetised a couple of elephant seals over the course of the years. So it's kind of cool as well. That is amazing. Um, yeah. Sarah That's has a pretty amazing. amazing job. I mean, she's a wildlife vet, so she gets to do not just marine mammals, but everything. So yeah. it's kind of cool. Oh, that is epic. I can imagine anaesthetising an elephant seal is a different ball game altogether as well. Those things are massive. Yeah, a, li a little bit more mobile than Weddell seals. But yeah, the reason we were anaesthetising it was because it was it hauled out in a caravan park and was crushing picnic tables. Um, <laughs> and people were worried their tents would also be crushed. So it was time to move it to a safer place. Oh my gosh, what a story. How, how did you move it? <laughs> You anaesthetised uh, it and... Uh, headbagged it, anaesthetised it and used a crane to get it into a trailer. Wow. That's cool. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So how did you get to where you are today? I, you're doing your PhD. Is that part-time or full-time? Currently, I do my PhD one day a week and I work the other days. Um, so I started out, I did my vet degree at Sydney Uni for a couple of years in practice and then moved to New Zealand to do 
specialist training in wildlife medicine at Massey Uni and that's where I discovered New Zealand sea lions and how cool they were and how there's quite a bit of work that could be done to to help improve pup mortality because a lot of pups um, at this particular site die from bacterial meningitis. I did my master's on New Zealand sea lions, finished that, came to Tasmania and worked for a year on Tasmanian devils um, for a fixed term contract and then started my PhD back in New Zealand until this job came up. So had a pretty um, busy couple of years doing uh, summer seasons at Enderby Island in the subantarctic and then the two seasons at Scott Base uh, amongst working. Yes. Amazing. Great to fit it all in. <laughs> Quite busy. Yeah, you sound very busy. Um, well, I'd love to talk a little bit more about this subantarctic work. A lot of our podcast episodes so far we've just primarily talked about the Ross Sea region um, down by Scott Base so yeah I'd love to hear about what you guys are doing there in that space. Yeah maybe maybe I can start I'll talk about the southern right whale stuff and maybe Sarah you can talk about the sea lion stuff. Um, the Auckland New Zealand subantarctics comprises about four different island groups spread around um, southern New Zealand. main one we've been working on is the Auckland Islands, which are about um, 200 kilometres south of Stewart Island. So so not not true subantarctic, but certainly they're pretty cold and difficult places to work. The species we've been working on there, southern right whales, breed in the northern end of the Auckland Islands, and we've been doing research on them for about 20 years now, trying to figure out population size um, and population recovery rates, among other things. So we've recently been down there in the last couple, the last year, or this year, in fact, and next year to redo some of our population surveys that we've did in the 90s and then the 2000s, um, which shows that that population is growing really strongly. Um, it's it's a great location. There's no one down there. There are some dock field teams down there in summer, occasionally doing bird or penguin or sea lion stuff. But but it's a neat place in that the animals just get on with things and do it all themselves. So um, pretty pretty neat place to work. Um, and we've got satellite tags out on some whales now that are have swum from the Auckland Islands west southwest and they're in fact 2,000 kilometers west of Western Australia at the moment disappearing off into the South Indian Ocean which is completely bizarre we none of us expected that at all so that's pretty exciting stuff but the sea lion program Sarah and I've both worked on but it's pretty neat animal we both have a soft spot for those but Sarah you talk about what we've been doing down there um, yeah, so everything's based um, on the uh, Department of Conservation monitoring program. So Simon's been involved for a very long time. Um, how long's that been? Yeah, long time. Long yeah. time. 20, 25 years probably now. <laughs> yeah, including a PhD as well. So every year there's a trip down to uh, monitor pup counts um, at Enderby, Dundas Island, which is the largest colony of the Auckland Islands, and a figure of eight island, a little small one. And we use the pup counts to get an indication of population size, um, just because all the pups are confined to land at that period of time um, and much easier to count than watching the adults go in and out from the water. Yeah, we normally, well, on a long season, you start at the beginning of December and Breeding's pretty synchronised, so males and females start arriving early December and more and more pups are born up until around Christmas Day, Boxing Day, um, and then it tapers off again. And all the pups are tagged mid-January when they're about a month old 
Um, so we get an account and we also do a mark recapture mainly for the larger islands where it's hard to get an accurate count because there's maybe 1,200 pups on Dundas Island, around 300 on Enderby. And then there's a lot of reciting work because after we've tagged them, been ongoing research there for a long time. So there's a lot of tagged animals. So we can recite them and add to the database of recites so we can get an idea of which females are having pups and what the ages are, what survival's like, that kind of thing. So um, that's the, the base of the work and then research projects get put on top of that um, in his spare time. It's a, it's a pretty cool project. It's been running for 25, 30 years. Um, and, the, and the good news is that sea lions were in steep decline during the 90s and early 2000s. And they've now stabilised at a at a much lower level, but they're no longer declining, um, which is good. We're not really sure why that happened. I think it, there are certainly climate change implications for some ecosystem changes down there with prey availability, but also some of the work Sarah has done on um, introduction of new infectious diseases may well have also contributed to that decline. But the good news is they're all doing pretty well down there now. I guess like the Antarctic Research Programme, um, the Sub-Antarctic Research Programme has been cancelled this year too for the same same kind of reason, um, trying to limit the number of people down there in the event that there's an outbreak back in New Zealand. But um, but yeah, we've been lucky to spend quite a few years down there or summers down there doing stuff. And they're a pretty cool, pretty cool animal. It definitely sounds like it. And so how long are you guys based down there when you're doing your field work? A full summer or just a month or so? For my PhD, we were there for three months at a time, from beginning of December to beginning of March. Some of the seasons have been a lot shorter than that. Um, the shortest one I've been on has been six weeks, but some, like if we just go down to the very basic amount of information gathering, then it could be a couple of weeks. But yeah, then you don't get the, the time to recite all those animals, so you lose quite a lot of information for that year. Yeah, normally a three-month field season is quite long. I think people have done up to four, depending on the research questions. And then sometimes there are other other trips, shorter trips during winter or other times of the year to try and fill it out. But um, but it's pretty well. It's not quite set up the way the Antarctic is. Um, Scott Base is pretty extraordinarily comfortable, um, and the the field bases down um, in the Orkney Islands are more dock huts, so a bit more bit more basic and primitive showering once every few days, eh, Sarah? Yeah, it's, it's still a hot shower, so it's worth it. Okay. Yeah. That's good. <laughs> Unless you have a hot shower, something to look forward to each week. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you guys work on a suite of really awesome animals. Do you have a, a bias or a favourite for one species <laughs> that you've studied in your whole career? I'd have to say New Zealand sea lions. They're just so... I guess charismatic. Um, they're really um, got a lot of character, and the pups pretty much behave like uh, like, you, like you're in, on an island surrounded by Labrador puppies. That's pretty much their personality. So it's it's pretty great to be part of. Wow, that's yeah, so no. cool. And the, and same for me. I mean, I love southern right whales because they're they're quite interactive for whales um, to come and have a look at you and check you out and bump your boat. But New Zealand sea lions are 
yeah, have, have great character. And in fact, it's something that New Zealand mainland and people around here are having to come to grips with because Sarah and I spent lots of time with them and kind of reasonably comfortable with their behavior. But, you know, around the mainland, they'll chase you out of the water. And if they see you on a beach, they'll come running over to you. And, you know, they will, they look pretty daunting because they're pretty big. I mean, I don't think either of us have been bitten after many years working with them. Um, yeah. But it, certainly doesn't look like that when they come charging up to you so yeah, and if Kiwis you run having, they'll chase you <laughs> yeah that's right that's if you turn around and run then they like that so they'll chase you even more so it's kind of interesting that we're having to relearn how to interact with wild animals because we're not used to wild animals in new zealand that actually chase us so it's it's a it's a challenge i think but i think we're getting there most people appreciate them yeah, I would love to see um, a New Zealand sea lion. I've always wanted to go down to the Catlins or if mm. I'm lucky, maybe one day the Southern Antarctic Islands, but I think they're definitely on my list. Yeah, it's cool. It's neat that people can see them around New Zealand. They're, they're, they're growing in numbers. There's quite a few now, new breeding colony at Stewart Island, but um, yeah, around Otago and the Catlins, they're, they're quite easily to see, quite easy, easily seen. Very cool. So yeah, I guess final question is what, what's to come for both of you? What, what do you want for the next five to 10 years of, of your career? I'd want Sarah to come back and work in New Zealand. So we're trying to <laughs> find opportunities to bring her back so she can work on New Zealand marine mammals and not Australian marine mammals. Yeah, uh, I'll, I'll do it all. Um, my, my goal for the next five years is to finish my PhD. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. Wow. Um, goal to have. <laughs> Um, I don't know. I mean, there's so many research and conservation issues in New Zealand to to address, and I think we're doing an okay job of it. But really, we need to, prof like like any researcher, I always tell you, you need more research and need more funding, and that's probably very much true for marine mammals. Um, there's, there's lots of exciting things to do. The Sea Lion Program is kind of dear to our heart, and we're hoping to work um work more towards adaptive management to try and have to help them there's things like 60 percent mortality of pups within you know the first two months of life which is not really sustainable for a threatened species so trying to support the department of conservation and trying to come up with some active management measures that we might be able to save some of those pups so that's kind of the thing i think we'll look forward to for the next few years exciting well you guys certainly have a really interesting field of work and you get to go to some amazing places and do some amazing things I think our listeners will be very interested in in all the stuff that you had to say today so thank you so much for sitting down and having some time to have a wee chat with me I've really appreciated it and it's been great to meet you both hope you enjoyed the podcast thanks for taking the time to learn and listen more information about the episode and guest can be found in the show notes for those interested. And please leave a review if you've enjoyed tuning in. Subscribe to Antarctica Unfrozen wherever you listen to keep up to date on new guests, topics and ideas of the icy environmental kind. This season was made possible thanks to Pride Conservation, a boutique social enterprise from Aotearoa, New Zealand, on a mission to contribute to the conservation movement both here at home and globally. For more information and to help be part of the movement, check out www.prideconservation.co.nz. That's it for now. I'm Sinead Monty. And I'm Harry Seeger. And, and until, until next, next time, time stay cool. Stay cool.